You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. I take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 while I change suits. Jump into a phone booth and change from my music suit to my preacher seat. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Is it cool in here for you now? I'm burning up. <laughs> but it feels good. Okay, I see some teeth chattering. We'll just strike the middle ground. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read some verses as we go through. This morning I want to talk to you along the lines, of, obviously, of the subject of the resurrection about some last things in Scripture, particularly some last things in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I read the story of a man in Glasgow, Scotland, who was visiting in a, an art gallery and was walking through admiring the beautiful art there and saw a little boy standing over looking at a picture that was supposed to be depicting the crucifixion of Christ. And the man thought that he'd have, have a little fun with the little boy, and so he walked over and he said, Son, can you tell me what that picture is all about? And the little boy looked at him a little bit incredulously that someone would ask such a foolish question wouldn't realize what that picture was all about. And he said, well, mister, that's a picture of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And the man thought, well, how cute and how quaint. So he patted the little boy on the shoulder and then he went on about his business looking at the art in the gallery. A few minutes later, the little boy came and tugged at his shoulder and he looked down and he saw the little boy there and he said, mister, I forgot to tell you something a minute ago. He isn't dead anymore. He arose. And that's why we're here today, because Jesus is not dead anymore, but in fact, he arose from the grave. That's why we're here today. That's why we are here 52 weeks of the year, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, to worship, to commemorate, to remember, to lift up the resurrected Lord Jesus. Jesus arose. You know, sometimes we save the best things for last. And I know that you guys are just like I am. You do that very thing. You like to save the best things for last. You men that, that play golf, and there's a couple of you out here, or you go on a golf course. I don't know how much golf you play, but there, most of you uh, have had a stick in your hand before. You know that in the national tournaments, that on the last day of the tournament, what is the last group to tee off in a national golf tournament? It's the, the number one, the leaders. They save the best for last. Now, I've gone out to eat with enough of you to, to know that, that you love your dessert, <laughs> when you eat. Many of you like it too much. The way that I know you, you love your dessert is because you always save it till the last. I've never been out to eat with any of you that walked into the restaurant, sat down and said, bring me my dessert and bring the main course later. You save the best for last because that's the best part of the meal. When I pastored in Fort Lauderdale, Florida for nearly three years, my wife was the hostess for a baby shower. And men, those are interesting things if you've never been a part of one of those. And I didn't have any place particular to go that night, so I thought I would just hibernate in the back bedroom and wait till that shenanigans was over with, and then I could come out and, and, and live in my house again. 
Well, I went back to watch television, and after about 20 minutes, I decided that I had to, as the scripture says Moses did with the burning bush, turn aside and see this great wonder that was taking place in the living room because it, it was incredibly noisy, and I couldn't figure out why opening packages should be so noisy. So I walked in, I walked down the aisle, and I stood in the dark shadows of the, of the, the living room there just watching what was going on. And what I saw was all of the presents were, were gathered over there in a the corner. They were piled up in a pile, but nobody was even paying them one bit of attention. I mean, it was almost as if they weren't even there. But what these women were doing was they had piles of baby clothes just thrown into a pile. They had four or five malls. And they were blindfolding each other, seeing who could diaper a baby doll the fastest. I thought, man, that's interesting. And I thought about, well, what are they doing? Like, that wasn't why they came. They had all had enough children to know how to diaper a baby. That wasn't why they were there. They came to open the presents. That was the reason for which they were there. But what were they doing? They were just simply saving the best for last and just building up to that. In the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that's really and truly what the 15th chapter is all about. It is called the great resurrection chapter. Paul deals with the gospel first in the first few verses that we looked at last week. And then he begins to talk about the resurrection of Christ. As a matter of fact, in the 15th chapter, we are given some of the best evidences for the reality and for the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ given in all of Scripture. Chapter 15 is a chapter about last things. And there are several of those last things that are important for you and me to know and to apply to our lives. And so as we look at the 15th chapter this morning, I want us to think about this idea of the last things pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll just look at some selected verses, not by any means our regular pattern that we study on Sunday mornings, but for this message, this is the way we're going to do it. We'll look at just a couple of selected passages throughout the chapter, or verses throughout the chapter, as we think about the last things, saving the best for last. Now, first of all, I want you to notice in these verses, verses 1 through 8, Paul talks about the last witness to be chosen. The last witness to be chosen. Now, when we think about the resurrection, you have to understand, folks, that the resurrection is the foundation stone of all of Christianity. If you take the resurrection of Christ away from Christianity, you have literally destroyed the Christian faith. Christianity literally hinges upon the reality and the fact of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, it is the resurrection that separates Christianity from every other world religion, from every other world faith. It is the only religion, it is the only faith on the face of the earth that claims the resurrection of its founder. Now, that's important. We are the only faith that claimed the resurrection from the grave of our founder. The Buddhists never claimed that. They never claimed that Buddha ever rose from the grave after he died. The Muslims never claimed that after Muhammad, their prophet, had died in 632 A.D. They never claimed that Muhammad was resurrected, that he rose from the grave. The Hindus never claimed that any of their great founders, any of their great leaders, ever came out of the tomb and out of the grave. It is only Christianity that claims that its founder rose from the tomb. Now, if that is true, if we do make such a claim as that, then we've got to be able to substantiate that. We must be able to substantiate that with fact. And I'm not going to take the time this morning. Sometime we need to do this, and we will do it in the future. But do you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well 
documented facts in history. Did you know that? Not only does the Bible speak about the raising of Jesus from the, from the dead, but even Jewish historians who never became believers in Christ write about the fact that the Christ, the Messiah, whom he claimed to be the Messiah, actually rose from the tomb, or the tomb was empty at least. It is one of the best documented facts in all of history. God had a plan. God had a purpose for that being so. And in these verses, Paul begins in verses 1 through 8 as he talks about the last witness of the resurrection. He begins to remind these Corinthians about some eyewitnesses to the resurrection. He talks about some of these proofs of the fact that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave. In verse 5, if you read with me in verse 5 there, he mentions Cephas. He says, and then that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now Cephas is none other than Simon Peter himself. It was Simon Peter that had one time denied Jesus before the crucifixion. He had denied Christ in order to save his own skin. But after the resurrection, a profound change took place in the life of Peter. And he no longer denied Jesus, but he became the great gospel preacher of the first century. And history tells us, tradition tells us, that the apostle Peter went on and was crucified upside down because he would not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 6, Paul goes on and he says, not only did he appear to Cephas and to the twelve, but then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And he says, most of these brethren are still alive today. He says, if you don't believe it about Cephas, well, he appeared to a group of folks that was as many as 500. And if you don't believe me, you can go ask them. Because when Paul wrote this, most of them were still alive. And so he said, if you don't believe, you can go ask them. And they'll tell you the truth because most of them are still alive. Then in verse 7, he goes on. And he says, and then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. Now, this James that he's talking about here was the half-brother of Jesus, I believe. The half-brother of Jesus that was born after the virgin birth of Christ. The scripture says that James was a skeptic from day one. He was a skeptic from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, John records in his gospel, chapter 7, that all of the brothers of Jesus were skeptics and would not believe in him while he was involved in his earthly ministry. They did not believe in the Lord Jesus. Even after seeing all of his miracles, his own half-brothers would not believe in him. Something miraculous took place in the life of James. An event took place that changed James's attitude completely and totally, and that event was the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus appeared to James, and James went on and became a believer and one of the great preachers in the first century church. And then in verse 8, Paul kind of comes to the crux of it all, the thing which he has been building up to. In verse 8, he says, And last of all, the last witness, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul is speaking about himself. He said, After Jesus had appeared to all of these, then finally he appeared to me last of all. Now, what does Paul mean? Paul means, I know that Jesus lives. He means, I know that Jesus is, is resurrected from the tomb. I know because I've seen him, I've been changed by him, I've been touched by the resurrected Lord Jesus. Paul was a Christian killer. He says, I killed Christians. I saw it as my duty to wipe this Christian sect off of the face of the earth when I was Saul, the Pharisee, the persecutor of Christians. In fact, I was on my way to Damascus to put to death more of God's people, to put to death more Christians. And Jesus appeared to me on the Damascus road. I became a new person. Paul says, I know he lives. 
because I've seen him. Last of all, he appeared to me. You know, as I read that, kind of get into the spirit of it and read between the lines, I hear two sounds coming out of Paul as he said that, last of all. I hear a shout of joy. I hear a shout of victory. Praise God that he appeared to me. Praise God that he called me unto himself. But I also hear something of a sound of remorse in his voice. Like, why did I wait so long? You see, what Paul says in verse 8 is very important. It says, last of all, he appeared to me as to one untimely born. That's an important phrase. As to one untimely born. It's a word in the original language that would refer to a miscarriage. A birth that happened too soon and the baby was not viable and able to live. It would also be referred to a birth that was too late. If a pregnancy was carried beyond term and, and, and the baby was born too late, it referred to any birth that did not happen according to the normal pattern. And Paul is saying here, last of all, he appeared to me as to one untimely born. I was born later than any of the rest. I believe that Paul is saying in these verses of Scripture as the last witness, thank God I'm saved, but why did I wait so long? Thank God I'm saved, but why did it have to happen in such a dramatic matter? Why did I not trust him as the Messiah and Lord when I had seen his miracles? Why did I have to be born untimely? Why did I wait so long? I've heard other people say that. Many times in the pastorate, I've heard other people say that. I remember a special lady, one of the most special ladies that I've ever had the opportunity to pastor in my ministry, a lady by the name of Barbara Mary in my church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. About a year after we had been there, Barbara Mary, a lady in her late 50s, came to visit our church one Sunday morning. I'd never seen her before. She heard the gospel, felt the tug of the Spirit in her heart, and she came and trusted Jesus as her Lord and Master. I had the opportunity to counsel with Barbara and then baptized her, and she came into the fellowship of our church. Barbara began to grow in Christ immensely. She was not a very educated person, was not very uh, successful according to the world standards. As a matter of fact, she really had nothing. She was not very much to look at. There wasn't really very anything flashy about her at all. She was just a very plain, a very simple lady. But when she trusted Jesus as Lord and Master, a profound change came over that woman. She began to grow in Christ. She began to devour the Scriptures. She began to witness to people. There was hardly a week that went by that someone did not come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior as a result of the direct witness of Barbara Mary. About six months after Barbara had been saved, she came to my office one day to sit down and just visit. And she said, James, I'm so happy. I've never been this happy in my life. I'm so glad that I came to know Jesus as, as Lord. I'm so glad that God has put me in this church where people love me and, and accept me. And, and I'm just thankful about life for the first time, really, in all of my years. I'm happy to be alive. I'm thankful about life. But she said, you know, James, why did I wait so long? Why did I wait so long? I raised all of my children. My children are in and out of jail. They're in and out of drugs. They're in and out of all of this stuff. I went to church all of my life, to various, various churches, and I never had anybody tell me how to be saved until I came to this place and these people loved me and you told me how I could be born again. Oh, I'm so glad that God saved me, but why did I wait so long? I think there's a sum of that in Paul's voice here. He speaks of himself as being the last witness, as being one untimely born. And he's praising God for the fact that he came to know the Messiah. But then he's also saying, but why did I wait so long? 
Listen, folks, if you've never met Jesus, there's no need to wait. There's no need to put it off. The scripture says that today is the day of salvation. Before you leave this place, you can know the resurrected Christ in a personal fellowship kind of way. Paul says, I was the last witness to one untimely born, but not only the last witness to be sought out, but I want you to notice second what he says in this 15th chapter. He speaks about the last enemy to be smashed. The last enemy to be smashed. Verses 25 and 26. Read with me. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26. But the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Last things, the last witness to one as of being untimely born. But not only the last witness, Paul talks about the last enemy that is going to be smashed. And that enemy, Paul says, is death. I want to read something to you that I found a couple of years ago and have kept it. Listen to the words of this story. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor. He calls upon the rich. He preaches to people of every religion and people of no religion. The subject of his sermon is always the same. It never changes. He's an eloquent speaker, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that remains unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name? Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of you will be his sermon. Hear that last line. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text, and someday every one of us will be his sermon. The last enemy to be smashed. Paul says in verse 26 that the last enemy that will be abolished is death. There's a great interest in death in our society, in our day and time. It's getting more and more. You could go to any secular bookstore or even any Christian bookstore, I suspect, and you could find a great number of books that are written on the subject and the topic of death and dying. A couple of years ago, I got hold of a Psychology Today magazine that had an article in it entitled, Death is in Vogue. That means that death is popular. It's a subject of great interest. It's something that people are thinking about and are talking about in these days and times. As a matter of fact, just a couple of days after I read that article in Psychology Today, I watched the ABC I think it's ABC, uh, don't want to give a commercial for him, but ABC News Nightline. Is that Ted Koppel and his gang? Okay, I watched that. I like to watch that show, and I watched him one night just a couple of days after I read that article, and guess what the topic was on Nightline that night? Death and dying. There's a tremendous interest in death in our day and time. It's no surprise we're surrounded by it. Everywhere you go, you see a, a dog that's been run over in the street, or you sit down and watch the, the idiot tube, the, the television, the one-eyed monster, and, and you see death and dying around the world because with increased communication, increased technology, it is literally brought into our very living rooms. We are surrounded by it. We hear it. We see it. We actually see the process taking place. If you've ever seen on a news program someone literally taking a picture of someone being shot, 
dying in the process, and it has increased our interest in this thing of death. In our day and time, I have even heard of some colleges and high schools that are offering courses in death and dying. Now, folks, this is true. I heard of a college where that course was being offered, and part of the course was when they brought in a coffin, put it in the classroom, and allowed the students to lie in it just to kind of get the feel of it. You imagine that. There's a tremendous interest in death. As a matter of fact, a poll that was taken in the late 1970s revealed that the average teenager thinks about death once every five minutes. Now, I don't know how they came up with that, but I don't doubt it. I remember when I was a teenager. I remember when I was a youth minister working with teenagers. It's a subject that's on their mind, this idea of death and of dying. And because there's such a great interest in it, there have been multitudinous, is that a word? <laughs> there have been a multitude of ways to pe for people to try to philosophically deal with this thing of death. You folks that are visiting and don't know me, don't worry about it, okay? <laughs> it just comes with the package. There's a multitude of ways that people have philosophically attempted to deal with this thing of death. One of them is the popular concept of soul sleep. Soul sleep is an interesting concept of death. It says that when you die, you just kind of sleep for a while. You just kind of go into this state of unconsciousness, and after a period of years or to be, I don't know even what it's dependent upon, you just kind of wake up one day in this state of nirvana. They don't call it heaven. It's just this kind of state of the Hinduistic thought of nirvana, of that ultimate paradise, that ultimate peace. That's the concept uh, of, of soul sleep. There's also the concept of termination. <laughs> Some folks deal with death just by this. They just say, when you die, you're dead. That's it. It's all over with. Now, that's, that's cute. That's, e that's an easy way of dealing with the biblical concept of hell. You don't have to think about hell. If when you die, you're just dead, well, then that takes care of heaven and hell, the whole shooting match. Go for the gusto. Get it all while, you, while you're here. Everything you can get right here and now because when you die, it's over. Then there's the popular concept that's becoming more and more popular. Many movie stars, as a matter of fact, um, hold to this one. I don't know. There may be something in that. You know, you might want to research that sometime about why so many of the, the folks that are in public figure hold to this idea of reincarnation. Now, folks, reincarnation is the recycling industry of the soul. <laughs> that's really what it boils down. I mean, why not? We recycle cans. We recycle newspapers. Why not people? You know, that's what reincarnation is all about, is the recycling industry of the soul. Reincarnation says that when you die, you'll later be born as something else. You'll come back as something else. Cockroach. You know, a lizard, a snake. If you've really blown it, and the luck of the draw is really against you, man. Maybe your mother-in-law. <laughs> but it's the recycling industry of the soul. Reincarnation. All of these are philosophical, humanistic attempts to deal with the thing of death in which there is such a tremendous, tremendous emphasis. But these are all human attempts. I've got good news for you today. And it's based on the Word of God. It comes right out of the very mouth of Paul himself. The good news is that God has already dealt with death. You and I don't have to deal with it. You and I do not have to deal with it philosophically. We do not have to agonize through it. But God himself has already dealt with death. He has a solution to death. Verse 26, he talks about it. That last enemy, that last enemy to be abolished is the enemy, death. 
God has the final blow in store for death. God himself in Jesus Christ has put to death, death. <laughs> That's good. He has put to death, death. He has delivered the final and the complete blow. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 2, the writer to the Hebrews writes that God has already broken the power of death and he is just waiting for that coming of Jesus to deliver the final and the consummate blow to put it to death completely. Now, folks, that means that death has been defeated. That means that death has been defeated in the death, in the burial, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you have been born again, now listen to that. That's a word that's fallen into disrepute in our day and time from a lot of folks that have been talking about being born again, but haven't evidenced it in their life. But it's a biblical term. Jesus said, if you have not been born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Praise God, I've been born again. But that is the only way that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has any effect for you or anyone else if you have been changed by the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And Paul says that God has already accomplished it. The final blow is just waiting to be dealt at the second coming of Jesus Christ. When you trust Jesus and faith as Lord and Master, the Scripture says that death no longer pertains to you. Those of you who are regulars with us, I've told you this story before some time ago. I want to tell it again because it fits so well. About a young man by the name of Mike Henry that was in my youth group when I was a student in the seminary here in Fort Worth, and I was the minister to youth of the First Baptist Church of Comanche, Texas, about 100 miles west of here. Mike Henry was the all-American kid, good-looking, athletic, 14 years old, as a matter of fact. His parents bought him a car. They were divorced. He had to go to work some 15 miles away on a turkey farm, and he was able to get a hardship license and various things, and they bought him a car. While I was ministering to youth there, Mike was tragically killed in that car accident one early Sunday morning, driving in from after working all night long, coming in and was on his way to church. As a matter of fact, Sunday school and then church. They came and pulled me out of my Sunday school class that I was teaching and said, James, you need to go to the hospital. Mike Henry has been killed in a car accident. So I went to the hospital and the family was, as you can imagine, completely and totally destroyed at the death of their son, just instantly like that. Mike and I were very close his mother asked me if I would perform the funeral service. It was the second one that I'd ever performed. The first one had been my father just six months after I'd become a Christian. And now Mike Henry. It was probably one of the most difficult things I ever did in my life. I visited in the, in the home with that family the day before the funeral and with his father. And his father said, James, I want to tell you a story. When we bought the car for Mike, we didn't want to. We were afraid to do that. Circumstances seemed to dictate buying the car from him, but his mother and I both were afraid of him driving the car, 14, almost 15 years old. Mike knew that we were afraid for his life, that he might hurt himself. And so Mike said to me, Dad, if anything ever happens to me, I just want you to take my Bible and open it up to the flyleaf, the front page in my Bible, and just read what's written there. His dad told me, he said, after Mike said that, I didn't think any more about it. I didn't bother to go get his Bible. I didn't bother to read it. But he said, yesterday, after the news of Mike's death came to me, after the initial shock had worn off, that was the first thing I remembered. So I went into his room, and I took his Bible, and I opened his Bible. And he said, James, I want you to read this. Read what it says. It said, Mike Henry, on February the 12th, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Thanks to James Reeves, 
and Frank Hall. Now, James Reeves was me. I don't take credit for that. I was his youth minister. Frank Hall was his Sunday school teacher, a man that loved him very dearly and, in fact, had led him to, to faith in Jesus. If anything ever happens to me, Dad, open the flyleaf of my Bible and read it. Mike Henry's answer to death, Jesus. Mike Henry understood, even as a 14-year-old boy, that Jesus had dealt with death, that there was victory in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that day, when I stood in that packed auditorium, the high school was turned out, everybody that was in town that was anybody was there at that funeral. The football team was lined up there, five or six rows of them. And that day, as I preached that funeral message, I was able to read these words with power and authority, written by the apostle in verses 55 through 57. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of sin, of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Mike Henry, a 14-year-old boy, understood that the last enemy to be smashed was death, that Jesus had, had already put it to death and was just waiting for that second coming to deal that final and that consummate blow. That's what the resurrection's all about, folks. It's not about Easter bunnies. They're okay. It's not about Easter bonnets. It's not about Easter, Easter lilies. It's not even about Easter eggs, to the surprise of some of you. It's about Jesus who's been risen from the grave. And Mike Henry, praise God, a 14-year-old boy, understood that. That death has been dealt the final and the complete blow. Let's close with this. The last trumpet to be sounded. The last trumpet to be sounded. Oh, I love this one. Verses 51 and 52. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. The last trumpet. Throughout Scripture, the trumpet is a very, very important instrument of symbolism. It was used in the Jewish uh, uh, way of things to call the God's people together for an assembly. It was used to direct soldiers in the path of battle. It was used to signify great events on the Jewish calendar in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, we're told that at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai from God to Moses, that it was accompanied with the sound of the trumpet. Throughout Scripture, there has been no trumpet. Now listen, there is no trumpet throughout Scripture that is as clear, that is as decisive, that is as important, and is as final as this trumpet. Because Paul says it is the last trumpet. It is not blown for battle. It is not blown for assembly. It is not blown for anything but to signify that great event that is about to happen in future. That is the coming of the risen Lord Jesus again for his people. It's the trumpet that Paul spoke about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he said, For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and listen and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is the same trumpet that the Apostle John wrote about on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. 
He said, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like the sound of a trumpet. And it said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. The last witness, yes. The last enemy to be smashed, but also the last trumpet to be sounded. This is it that Paul is writing about. It is when Jesus descends with the voice of the archangel, with the shout of glory, and with the blowing of the final trumpet of God. I look forward to that trumpet because I know Jesus as Lord and Master, not because I'm the pastor of this church. I knew Jesus long before I ever pastored a church. I had been touched by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus long before I ever became a minister. Jesus is my Lord and Master. And because of that, when that last trumpet sounds, the Scripture says, I have that eternal, lasting, set in concrete promise that I'll be raised. And should it happen in my lifetime, Paul says, I'll not even have to see the grave. I'll just meet him in the air. Do you have that promise? Do you have that assurance today? Have you met Jesus? The last witness has he come to you. Have you been a witness of the resurrection of Christ? Has the last enemy been smashed in your life? If you've never trusted Jesus in faith, the scripture says you're still a victim of death. You still have the judgment of death. It has not been removed yet. The last trumpet, if it were to sound this instant, would you go to be with Jesus or would you be left behind? Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and we praise you for your word. Thank you for that great day, that first Sunday when you rose from the tomb. We recognize, we realize that many thousands, even millions, scoff. But we also claim the promise that there's a day coming when there will be no scoffers left. But all we'll, we'll see, as your word has said, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in judgment or in eternal life. Father, we pray that you'll add this message to our hearts. God, speak to us in a very powerful way in this time of invitation. That someone that does not know the resurrected Lord Jesus would come to him in saving faith today. That others who need to get right, begin to live for him in victory, would also make that commitment and that decision. We give it to you, Father, and we bless you for it. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray and ask it. Amen. Stand with us.